This morning, turn in your scriptures to John 8, 12 through 29. I need your help this morning. Maybe you can do this. We'll see. Uh, just yell out. Not, don't, don't just yell out. Let me tell you what you're going to yell out, okay? Just yell out any famous trial that comes to mind. I knew it! I knew it! Roe versus Wade. What else? The monkey trial? Oh, the Scopes monkey trial. Okay. Anything else? Everybody's wondering what the Scopes monkey trial is. Yes. Way to represent. What else? Yes. Did you just say Optimus Prime? What did you say? Betamax. Oh, yes. And we all know who's going to win that one. Thank you, Jesus. Um, I have a, a favorite movie of mine is 12 Angry Men. Love 12 Angry Men. And I used to, back in youth ministry, I used to force my staff to watch this. And I was lucky I had any staff 10 minutes in. Um, they just, they didn't get it. Uh, and then slowly as they started ruminating on it, they finally started to understand uh, how to um, stand up and champion truth when truth needs to be championed in light of all the pressure that you could possibly face. I love 12 Angry Men. If they, you know, I, I heard that that was like a 1957 black and white movie. And I heard they redid it in 1997, so for all the kids today. I think if the kids did 12 Angry Men, they'd all kind of show up at a Starbucks and say whatever when it came to deliberation. Um, kind of nice that we came from a society that was more black and white. And now we've kind of lost it when we colorized everything. And so we're going to look at the issue of Jesus' prudence today. Jesus' prudence. How many of you are familiar with the word jurisprudence? Just so you know where I got this from, all right? Um, and now, all right, I just have to tell you, this is kind of like sitting in an ordination council where you really know that you don't know what you think you know, and you know that the guys across from you know a whole lot more than what you're supposed to know. And so I know, I know that we all know that he's sitting right there, all right? And if there's anybody else in the audience today that has law in their background, I promise you, let's just get this out of the way. I'm going to butcher this, okay? I'm going to butcher the illustration. Now, this is a layman's terms illustration. I'll do my best. So let's look at the passage this morning, John 8:12:30. Now we're back at the temple. And remember where we left off before Jesus left at the festival of the booths, Jesus left and went up to the Mount of Olives, and then he came back. And at the end of chapter 7, you have verse 53, it says, Each one of them went to their own homes. Each one of them left and went to their own homes. But Jesus came back. He wasn't done. Now this was a festival that started out by him with his brothers up in Galilee, and, and they're all heading down for this festival. It's a huge communal thing. Everybody does it. And his brothers say, hey, come on, make this big announcement. Let everybody know who you are, if you really are who you say you are. And Jesus says, no, I'm not, I'm, it's not my time. I'm not going. For a guy who says he's not going, 
he stayed the longest. All right? And he was a fly in the ointment, a scab that has been festering. He is, nobody ever describes Jesus this way. I'm, I'm fresh in my application here. Jesus spends the entire week agitating and irritating the established religious thought because there's so much at stake. He's bringing change. He's bringing change, and that to, to his own detriment, he's going to share. And so the festival of booths is over. Jesus should go home. Everybody does. But he doesn't. And he comes back. And so last week we saw this is where the Pharisees and the religious leaders go and pull a woman right out of the act of committing adultery and throw her in front of Jesus and say, all right, we're going to trick you now. Now we got you. You know, what, what do you think should happen here, Jesus? We talked about that last week. So he's still in the temple. Where we pick up today, they're still after him. But you'll see as we read through the text, there's a fascinating process. As, as we looked two weeks ago, remember Nicodemus turned to his fellow uh, scribes and religious leaders when they wanted to kill Jesus. And Nicodemus says to them, do we not have laws? And that was my point about rhetoric, is that when... When you bring something up that it has validity and somebody doesn't have an answer to it, but they don't want to lose, what do they do? They turn on you. They try to discredit you. They try to demonize you. And that's how you know when they don't have a good answer. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did to Nicodemus. They don't care about the law. They care about their own agenda. And folks, this is what kills us spiritually. It's when spiritual leaders... Be be, uh, become all about their own agenda rather than the truth, we distort and we discredit the name of Christ. So Jesus isn't done. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus' prudence. This is a fascinating study in kind of a little mock trial. And let's see how it goes. Let's start in verse 12. It says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the opening statement. This is Jesus' opening statement. He starts in again with them. There may have been a period of time, probably was, because it says at the end of the situation with the adulterous woman that these leaders went away one by one slowly, right? You remember this? First the older ones left and then the younger ones left. So now they're back at it again. Jesus plopped himself down right at the treasury, the place where you'd have the most action in the temple. And he starts again. And he makes this prolific opening statement. He says, I am the light of the world. Folks, this is a messianic statement. He's not just saying, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. He's saying to those who would have known exactly what he's saying, he's saying, I am Messiah. I hold power that you don't. I am that which you should what? Follow. This was a huge threat to the established group. So that's his opening statement. What do you do with that? He contrasts darkness and light, doesn't he? There's a lot that Jesus could have said here about his messiahship. All he simply says is, 
I am coming to bring you light. So that if you follow me, you will escape darkness. My friends, to us today, let's pull out of the temple. You've sat down there. You're next to Solomon's colonnade. You're wearing your toga or whatever it would be. You've been listening to Jesus for quite a while. I want to pull you back into the 21st century. You're sitting here now and the message from Christ is still the same. If you follow me, you no longer have to walk in darkness, but you can walk in light. This morning, that is where we will rest. Do you find that to be true? That is the question. That is what's on trial here. Is that statement. Well, this is a promise that's shrouded in power. While I can help you, while I can serve you, and while Jesus was a servant, folks, I don't have the power to be the light of the earth. I don't have the power to save your soul. Nobody does except Jesus Christ. Do you find this to be true, ladies and gentlemen, of the jury? Next, I'm skipping discovery altogether. Presentation of evidence. You like, what, am I doing okay? All right, thank you very much. Presentation of the evidence. Jesus' defense is his testimony. You know, you always hear about, oh, I don't know if they're going to take the stand you know, they could self-incriminate themselves. And it seems like nowadays when you hear about somebody taking the stand in their own defense, it's not a good idea. Or kicking the stand in their own defense. It's not a good idea. Yet this is exactly what Jesus does. This is where he starts. Because he's trying to make the point that my word isn't the same as your word. My word is true. And just because it is my word, it's true. Now, he already knows that they're not going to accept that argument. If you were sitting in his situation, would you go there? I wouldn't. I would simply say, that's superfluous. That's, that's not going to fly. Nobody's going to listen to that. I'm not going to be able to defend such a prolific statement like this simply by saying, uh, what I just said is true because I said it. Right? Do you understand Jesus' mindset? is that he comes from the understanding and the approach and the conviction and the absolute understanding that he is who he is. It's not arrogance. Now, if I got up and I started, you know, that would be arrogance. But with Jesus Christ, it's not arrogance because who is it that we need to look to? We have to look to Jesus. That's the way God has set it up. So he needs to get their attention. So to just evacuate this concept of, well, don't throw out your own testimony. That, that's not going to hold any water. Jesus says, no, you need to pay attention because it is my testimony. I am the light. It is the light's testimony. It is he who will save you. It is his testimony. So he's giving his defense and he starts with his own testimony. Let's look at this. Number, why don't we just go with verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, again, this is, this is the issue of presentation of the evidence. They get up and they start cross-examining Jesus. The Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. That makes sense, right? Wouldn't all of us just say that about, you know, an argument? For trying to get to the veracity of what's happening? 
Jesus answers them and he says this, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Any lawyer would tell this individual to get off the stand at this point. You're not making a whole lot of sense. You're not doing anything for your, for your, uh, your defense. We need clear testimony. But see, something's going on. As much as this is ambiguous, as much as we can get lost in what Jesus is saying, something happens at the end. By the way, you're a jury listening to this testimony when we conclude in about an hour and a half. We take a recess. When we conclude in about a half hour, you need to arrive at a what? A verdict. A conclusion. It is amazing the conclusion that we see at the end of this section today. It is, I do not believe it is because of the words that were spoken that people believe. I believe it is because of the power of Jesus and His living testimony that people believed along with the words. Because the words aren't very clear here, are they? You don't know where I come from. And you don't know where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Let's unpack that. The prosecution yells objection here. You can't give testimony to yourself. What are you doing? That is not going to hold up. Strike it from the record. And Jesus comes after him. He upholds his testimony. He actually calls, it's almost as if he calls for a sidebar. Am I all right? Okay. It's almost as if he calls for a sidebar and they have to approach judges' quarters. And they need to talk about what's admissible evidence and what isn't. See, the prosecution saying, you can't say that. that. That holds nothing. And Jesus says, it holds everything because I am the light of the world. If I can't give testimony about myself, yet I proclaim to be the light of the world, He who will change everything, then what am I? I'm nothing. But see, we're in the midst of the trial. We have to keep examining what's being said. So Jesus comes to them and He says, Fine, your law says that you have to have two. I'll testify towards myself and my Father will testify for me as well that I am who I say I am and that I am the light of the world. What's the response by the prosecution? Who's your daddy? It's sad. It would be like a lawyer who just doesn't understand the basic law or justice. Really the issue of justice, not so much the law. They got so wrapped up in law that they lost track of justice. 
The prosecution here is so wrapped up in the law because it is their life that they lost track of the one who gave the law. They don't have a clue who the Father is. This morning, do you and I have a clue? Would we know the actions of the Father if they happened around us, through us, or to us? Would we have animosity towards Jesus in the temple that day? Would we line ourselves up with the prosecution or with the defense? So Jesus has to say my testimony counts because I am the light. Otherwise he cuts his own throat with his defense. But then he acquiesces to what the defense or what the prosecution wants. And he says, fine, you need more testimony? My father verifies who I am. Well, we don't know your father. That's not going to fly. That's not going to fly in the court. It's the effect of this testimony that it has to be admissible for evidence. The law states that two witnesses are required. Jesus states that the father bears witness, but that the prosecution will never accept that because they don't know him. Verse 18. So Jesus calls his prosecutors out on the issue of prima facie. Did I say that right? As I have studied this Latinish word, my understanding is that it simply means a cursory understanding, a surface understanding. Folks, those that were prosecuting that day that stood in the temple courts had a prima Is it fascia or facie? Fascia. I thought so, but I keep thinking that's something you put on your house. It's a prima facie issue. Is that they're only going to the surface of what's happening. They don't understand who the Father is. They're not looking for the Messiah, and they've truly lost track of the, pro the prophecies. So Jesus calls them out on it. There's a credibility issue here. It's kind of like 12 Angry Men. There's a great scene in 12 Angry Men. Now, it's a bunch of men from the 50s, and they're all wearing, except one guy uh, who bets on horses, um, I think it's Jack Klugman, actually. And uh, uh, they're all wearing, you know, the white button-down with the tie, kind of like the IBM suit, business professionals. But all of these men are vastly different. Vastly different. And there's an elderly man in the group. And all of a sudden, this jury starts talking about the credibility of witnesses. What is the veracity to the witnesses? Because the evidence seems to be preponderance, a preponderance of, of guilty. This kid is guilty. Over and over and over. And, and one person, Peter Fonda, says, I just don't know. The evidence looks shaky to me. Let's keep looking. Let's keep examining. You know, at least let's, let's look. Isn't a life worth that? And so they go after the one witness that's an elderly man that says he saw... Or he heard what had happened. And so, those that are convinced this kid's guilty keep yelling about the credibility of, of this eyewitness testimony. It's irrefutable. So Peter Fonda keeps suggesting, really? What's the distance that this person would have heard? 
the, 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 the uh, suspect yell, I hate you and I'm going to kill you, or whatever it was he, he supposedly yelled. And they start working through the evidence, and suddenly doubt is inserted to the testimony and the veracity of this gentleman's witness, his credibility as a witness. And so somebody brings up the question, why would he lie? Come on. Why would he lie? And the elderly man, who really hasn't said much at all, finally speaks up. And he says, a man needs to know that he's important. And when you get to be my age, you're no longer needed. And so to sit on a jury of a high-focused trial within this great city, or, or, or to be a witness, an eyewitness, you could bend the truth if you were convinced that you felt like this probably had happened. It's fascinating, credibility of witnesses. And so when they explored the evidence in a deeper sense, they realized there was no way that this gentleman could have heard what he actually heard or, or said what he heard, not what he actually heard. So let's run a little bit of a credibility test, a veracity test against Christ's comments. He says he's the light of the world and that if we follow him, we no longer walk in darkness, but we walk in newness of life. Now that is a prophetic statement. It hasn't happened yet. The cross hasn't happened yet. You and I have the advantage, my friends, to look back on the testimony of Christ and say, He did demonstrate Himself to be the light of the world. He did do everything that He said He would do. The Father did vindicate Him. The Father did raise Him. The Father did establish Him and exalt Him above all others. We have that evidence before us. Jesus says to Thomas, and I believe it's in John 19, He says, You believe because you see and you touch, but blessed are those who believe who do not see. How would we interpret Jesus' testimony that day? You see, it's easy for us because we know how it turned out. But for these individuals, he's challenging and, and turning everything upside down, and he's simply saying, on my authority, on my authority, on my authority. If that's not enough for you, then it's on the Father's authority. Oh, great, thanks a lot. That helps. Brothers and sisters, if we have an issue with believing in the words of Christ, here's why. We lack spiritual acumen. We lack spiritual acumen. We're not focused on the spiritual things in life. We're focused on us. We fit right into the prosecution here. That unless what Jesus says fits into my life, I'm going to challenge it. I'm going to challenge it. And we don't necessarily do it the way that the Pharisees were doing it here. The Pharisees wanted to challenge Him because that was safe. That was easy. Nobody really knows who you are and you can't prove you're the Son of God. And you can't prove you really came from heaven. And you can't prove you're going back. In a short while, he will, as he ascends to heaven. And over 500 people saw him do it by eyewitness accounts. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. But for you and I this morning, the challenge is that 
we have his testimony, we saw the results, we see the results, but when his testimony doesn't fit with our convenience in life, much like the Pharisees, what do you and I do? Do we change Jesus to fit what we want him to do? Jesus refused to change. I don't know if you noticed it yet. They picked up rocks three times already. And he keeps coming back for more. And he never changes his message. The big challenge to this message, as I studied it and I've been studying it for a week and a half, is simply this. You've heard this message now three times in the book of John. And I've, I've been challenged to understand why would John keep recording Jesus saying the same thing over and over? And I think the big thing for us is because we will doubt. Because we will try to change the message of Christ. It's all around us. It's all around us. But unlike this witness in 12 Angry Men, Jesus' veracity of what He says is true, and He's proven it, and the Father has proven it. So we get into establishing motive. Alright? That's part of the, the, the job of the, uh, the solicitor, as I'm, I'm getting ready for my trip to England. The solicitor, as it were, the lawyer... Jesus is eternal. We will die in our sin. Therefore, we cannot share in heaven. What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let's pick it up in verse 20. So there's a, a parenthetical break here. And he says this, or John says this, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So there's greater things that are going on, greater things that are at work. We've already heard that they've wanted to arrest him three separate times, and it just ha hasn't happened. So here we go again, verse 21, just like we started in verse 12. So he said to them again. He's relentless. When someone is relentless, is it pretty easy to understand their motive? One of my daughters, I won't mention which one, protect the witness wants a bunny rabbit. And she is being relentless in asking and, and researching. She even called somebody that we know that has a rabbit and asked, you know, how do you do all this? How do you build the cage? She's being relentless. What is her motivation? She wants to cuddle with a fuzzy bunny. All right? That's her motivation. It isn't cleaning up all the rabbit pellets. It isn't combing out the rabbit hair. It isn't all those things that whatever you do with a rabbit, I don't know what you do. It isn't in, in manufacturing good luck. No, I didn't say that. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> Come on, let's just move on, shall we? You can find someone's motivation based off of their relentless approach. Jesus does it again. He's showing his motivation, and so now he's going to tell you his motivation. Are you ready? Jury, pay attention, take notes. Here is his motivation. These words he spoke from the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Does this sound familiar? We heard this from him two weeks ago. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He's speaking poetically here. 
I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He who you... <clears throat> unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. I am He, meaning the Messiah, the Savior. So they said to Him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Again, any solicitor is going to slap their forehead. Here's the question. This is the moment. The prosecutor says, Who are you? I just told you. I'm the light of the world. <clears throat> uh, well, let's book him. Let, let's get uh, Psych in here and uh, let's get this guy. They just don't get it. But what has Jesus just said? You will die in your sins. Why does he keep going back to the temple? Have you noticed we've been camped out in the temple? For about a month? Why does he keep going back? Why would you keep going back somewhere? Where's that place that you keep going back to? Sam keeps going back to the O Stadium. And there's a reason for it. Our seniors keep coming back for a senior lunch. It's because of Mary Lou's Jello. What are the places you frequent and you keep going back and keep going back? I go to England's catering for lunch twice a week because their tri-tip sandwich is phenomenal. I have motivation. Jesus' motivation is that He loves you and you're going to die in your sins unless you what? Believe. And to the detriment of His own safety, He keeps sending the message over and over and over. Folks, all of a sudden you've got a message here that isn't self-serving. Now it's very different than the man in the story of 12 angry men. The one who would change the truth so that he can be called as a witness and his ego can be fed. What Jesus is proclaiming will be certain death for him. When someone is proclaiming something that is going to bring them harm, Usually you can scratch off or, or, or tick off the checklist the issue of what? Self-serving. I was sharing this with somebody last night that everybody has an agenda. Everybody has an agenda. I have an agenda this morning. Christ has an agenda in this discourse. The agenda is to help people not die in their sins. Are you believing it? Are you believing it? So what is his motivation? That men may not die in their sins. Jesus is not from this world. We need to believe so that we do not die in our sins. And this message is from the Father. So he says you need to believe it. Let's move into closing arguments. Verse 28 says this. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, and He has not left me, left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. You know, hold off on verse 30. 
So this closing argument's very simple. He says, you're going to understand this when the Son of Man is lifted up. When is that? The cross. It's the cross. Jesus already talked about this in John 3 in his discourse with Nicodemus. And he says, just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be, what? Lifted up. And just like those that had suffered from snake bites, all they had to do was to what? Look at the staff that Moses had raised and they would be what? They'd be healed. If we look to the cross and believe in the cross, believe in the work of Christ at the cross, we will be what? We will be healed. We will no longer die to our sins. Do you see what Jesus is getting at? Do you see his motivation? And so this is his closing statement. This is his closing argument. You may not believe me now, but you will. And he's setting them up because he knows they're not going to believe me right now. They will not believe me right now, but the events that are about to transpire will lead them to understand and there will be a pivot point. And so I'm going to set them up to understand the truth and the veracity of what I say. And that what I say is not by my own authority, it's by the Father's authority as well. So what happens? Well, the jury goes into deliberation. And if you are deliberating today, is Jesus the light of the world? His opening statement. If you are deliberating today and it says, those who follow me will be removed out of darkness and they will walk in newness of life. What would you say? Would you say it's true? It's deliberation time. Would you say he's true? Well, this is just a... Let's get him out the dung gate and uh, put him to work. Well, it's interesting what happened. Look at verse 30, will you? Without going to the cross yet, without raising from the grave yet, without His hour having come yet, what does it say? As He was saying these things, many, what? Believed Him. You know, you can read testimony, but when you talked with a person, they say 80% of communication is nonverbal. To look in someone's face, to experience, to experience, to experience the truth of what someone's saying is often transmitted in personal contact. Being able to look into the eyes. Being able to hear and I believe the Holy Spirit is the one that obviously brought people into belief in that moment. What about this moment now? Where is this jury? You've heard the argument. You've heard the deliberation or, or, or the prosecution. You've heard the, the evidence, whether you might think it's circumstantial. By the way, most of the evidence that Jesus presents is circumstantial. Am I right? It's circumstantial. It's so nice to have a wingman like Brad. Most of his evidence is circumstantial. When does it move into strong empirical evidence? It moves in when he dies on the cross. It moves in when he's resurrected. It moves in when he ascends to heaven and proves everything he said he would do. It moves in when we understand and we come to an, a deeper understanding of our own sin. 
and that we will die in our sins if it's not for a Savior. And it really becomes solid truth by a witness to move me into the pattern of belief when I experience the light of the world. And I believe that's what happens for each person that comes to Him. So the question again today for us as we conclude this trial, and as you walk out the door and CNN is there, and they're going to interview you, and you cannot write a book about your time serving on this jury, what say you? Because what's interesting is that, and again, I may, uh, I may have messed this up, but I believe based off of what happened in verse 30, we have a mistrial. It's not a unanimous decision. It says many believed, but not everybody believed. And this morning, statistically, many of you believe, but not all of you believe. There may even be some of you who think you believe, but you don't believe truly yet. There may be those that say, I don't really believe, but guess what? You don't know it, but you're in process. And he's drawing you to him. This morning, the challenge for you and I is to know whether or not we believe that he is the light of the world. Is Jesus who He says He is? Let me help you real quickly to, to figure that out. I'm going to give you some very basic things to, to ponder, and I'll close. Do we know what it means to be the light of the world? What does that mean? It means to stand in stark contrast to those things that destroy. Go to John 10, and it's one of the easiest ways to define this. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come to give you life and life to the what? Life to the full. Can you see the differences and the contrast all around you? If you see that, guess what that is? That's called evidence. That's called evidence. Do you see lives changed? Eric stood in front of us last week in baptism. And he talked about a transformed life, a changed life, because of who? Eric? Because of who? Because of Jesus. Empirical evidence. No longer walking in darkness, but walking in light. How do you know what the light is? You'll know if you're honest with yourself. What is good and righteous and what is destructive? That's how you figure it out. Start there. The second thing you've got to approach then as a jury member is how much do you care? I'm going to really blow it out of the water right here. The wadir, which is, I think, the jury selection. Can anybody back me up on that? Thank you, Mary. The wadir... I will never get to serve on a jury again, I think, as long as I live. <clears throat> because I love French crewlers. No, obviously not. Because I'm what? I'm a pastor. So I am, in the world's view, biased. Isn't that scary? Isn't that scary? I cannot have an objective view as a pastor. Towards what? Justice? Folks, as, as the jury selection happens, the question is, as they pull people in, 
do you care and what do you care about? I think that's what a lawyer is asking. Do you care and what do you care about? So I pose the same question to you. You may now say, I know what the difference is between light and dark. So I've got that part down. Now the question is that word that Jesus used in the middle of his opening statement, a follower. A follower cares. And you know exactly what they care about because of what they... Help me now. Follow? You know what they care about based off of what they follow. So my friends, I ask you this morning, what do you follow? What do you follow? You want to know what you believe? Consider to yourself what you follow. Lastly, I'm going to borrow from Paul's writings, Galatians 5.22. Look and examine the evidence. If you truly believe in Jesus, and if you truly believe in what he says, and therefore, because he is the light of the world, it offers me great hope that I no longer have to walk in darkness, but I can experience newness of life. What do I need to have as evidence that I believe that? Because Jesus puts it out as a, as a promise, right? So what do I need to have to prove that I really believe this? Newness of life, right? I need to have newness of life. Do you have newness of life? Because that's what Jesus brings. Examine the evidence, my friends. Do you believe? Do you believe? Let me close in prayer. This morning... You send out a team. I'm very, very excited about this. And after we take the offering and after we do the um, uh, last song, we're going to have the missions committee come on up or a representative from the missions committee come on up. And we're going to commission our team to Birmingham. And uh, this is a very exciting time. And those that are going on this missions trip are going because they're walking in newness of life. And it is our prayer that the light of the world would be exposed to others so they no longer have to follow in darkness, but they can walk in newness of life. Let's commit this to prayer, our offering. This morning, if you are visiting with us, don't feel under any compulsion to participate. We, we look at this as part of our worship. Uh, we're very excited to look at this as part of a worship. And I just I want to share with you one more time, kind of a parenthetical thought. Folks, I, I stood up here, I think, last week, and I shared with you that, boy, it, it was just, again, the perfect storm, that we're doing so much that, that is beyond the abilities of a church of 150 people. We are Gideon's church here. I will just share with you. And it's exciting. Um, you know, this is supposed to be the Tower of London needs a little bit more conversion. Um, I never noticed these two guys. This is kind of scary. All right, I don't know what this is. I didn't put that in there, and I don't know how it even got on there. But uh, I'm leaving town because of it. So um, we just see things happening. Last week, the baptism testimonies, our membership class, it's tremendous to see God's hand at work. 
And so I, I just want to share with you again, we ended up coming to you with all of these financial needs all at once. And I tried to really encourage you last week, hey, just pray about what God would have you be involved in. We don't want to put pressure on you. Um, but thank you. Lifetime is going well. Um, the, the B team is doing well. Uh, our church is doing well. We work against the grain of what our government does. So we're excited. We're excited about the fact that there are so many here that obediently participate in this part of worship to make God's work happen. And we are direct recipients of that. And so may the gospel of Jesus Christ go out from this place. Let me pray over the offering. Father, thank you for the blessedness that you give to us, the giftedness, the provision that you bestow upon us. Lord, as we give to you a, a portion, we do so joyfully, we do so with excitement, and we do so with anticipation that this will be used so that many may believe. Lord, we commit this to you in your name. Amen.